As you know, beloved listeners, I've had uh, many a weird and wonderful chat on the little wireless program over the years, and one of the weirdest and wonderfulest was a chat I had with Edward Brooke Hitching. Edward's a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, a researcher for that uh, famous British TV show QI, and a long-time collector of rare books and maps. And we discussed in our last conversation the strangest books ever written, including, as I recall, a Koran written in the blood of Saddam Hussein and Captain's Cook, Captain Cook's catalogue of rare fabrics. Edward's written his own fair share of curious books in his time, from the Madman's Library to the splendidly entitled Fox Tossing, Octopus Wrestling and other forgotten sports. Bring them back, I say. His latest offering may be his strangest. It's a travel guide unlike any other called The Devil's Atlas and it takes us on a journey through the heavens and hells and burglaries that um, history and faith record. Uh, I'm delighted that Edward's on the blower now from the other side. Is Wi-Fi good in heaven? We seem to be getting a pretty strong signal. Excellent, excellent. Now, before we venture up to your pearly gates and or descend into the fiery (laughs) pit, what inspired you to produce your Atlas of the Afterlife? I, I think it was two separate things uh, that immediately connected. And one was, I mean, for this job, I'm always rootling around in um, um, sort of antique shops and auctions looking for strange objects that are sort of underreported. And I came across this folded wad of rag paper, fox and torn at the edges. And it didn't look like much, but as I unfolded it, it turned into this enormous um, A1 movie poster sized <laughs> map of heaven, hell, purgatory, all in one um, fantastic design. Um, and I realized, a, well, A, it's rare to discover uh, anything surviving uh, made of that sort of material because it was designed to be posted up in, on the walls of Paris in about 1650 to, to, you know, obviously to warn of the nastiness that could await. Um, so the fact that it survived was astonishing. But also I realized of all the tens of thousands of maps that I've had to work with over the years, maps of heaven and hell must be the rarest. I realize I've just never seen anything like it. So the idea was to try and um, see um, not just of Christianity, but to take a look around the world and see how many attempts have been made by map makers and artists, and then in extension, writers and philosophers to map, to chart, to uh, depict um, the afterlife in various beliefs around the world. Edward Dante had a crack at it, didn't he? Yes, Dante is is our grand architect um, in in the sort of Christian imagination of what hell looks like, um, and he was the first to um, sort of codify it in a way with structure. He gave it levels, he, um, and he created this wonderful narrative, this progression through the various um, circles, and ultimately to find um, Satan frozen to his waist. Um, in a in a frozen lake, uh, perpetually devouring the traitors of the Bible with his three faces, which was a sort of perverse um, inversion of the Holy Trinity, um, and and he is at his 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 work is at the core of the um, tradition that was so fascinating of um, Renaissance 
um, cartography, the Renaissance introducing, uh, among other things, an obsession with measurement. Um, and one of the traditions that emerged from this was something called infernal cartography, where people attempted, um, architects and artists mapped hell, gave it measured space. Um, and I think one of the most extraordinary stories inspired by that was um, the fact that I, I don't think it's very well known that Galileo Galilei um, gave two lectures in which he calculated the physical dimensions of hell and calculated where it ran. And he, he posited that the roof, giant roof of hell began under Marseille in France and ran all the way across <laughs> to under Tashkent in modern Uzbekistan. He even calculated the thickness of the roof at some 370 odd miles. And he based that calculation on the Duomo. But then later he realized that that was far too heavy and it would have crushed every, every <laughs> thing and every soul underneath. I hadn't realized that the Buddhist count of hells can range anywhere from eight to several thousand. Yes, it's, it's, it was quite difficult trying to summarize because, of course, every um, sort of core primary text that you consult for descriptions of, of, of the number of different hells is, is different. Um, and what you find is they also evolve. They break down into various hell departments and various wings. Um, and the torches get more and more specific, more finely tuned to the sins of the sinner to match them. But I think one of my favorites is the hell for monks who fail to keep up their studies and they're crushed from above by enormous heavy books. And I've got an image of that in the, in the book, actually. Tell me about the, uh, the Hell Scroll. This is a 12th century Japanese uh, example, because yes. I, I'm interested in the Hell of the Flaming Rooster. Right, yes, the Hell of the Flaming Rooster is, is oddly not the strangest, I don't think, of it. But it, yes, it lists, um, I think, about eight or so of the main main house. It's a 12th century Japanese Buddhist um, scroll. And so one of these realms is, is, is reigned over by an enormous fiery cockerel that would sort of peck your innards for all eternity. But uh, perhaps you'd be lucky to end up there and not at the other, um, say, the hell of excrement or the hell of the iron mortar, the hell of the black uh, sand cloud. And, and of course, there's the classic uh, hell of pus and blood, which actually you find in, in various beliefs. My heavens above. I yeah. Thank God I'm an atheist now. In, chi <laughs> yeah, in China, right. hells are more bureaucratic. Yes, that's, that's, what, that's what I found quite interesting. Um, and actually, I suppose, reflects the general development as society develops. Our idea of torture kind of changes. Um, and so, yes, the Chinese hell varies in the sense that um, there are waiting rooms from which you never really escape. Um, and there's the sort of famous land of the hungry ghosts, um, which are souls who are consigned to a hell through a sort of bureaucratic error. And so they're wandering in perpetuity, hoping that the uh, mistake is corrected. It's a bit Kafka-esque, isn't it? Because the dead have to Absolutely. repeatedly submit petitions following strict procedures. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Kafka could well, um, could have founded his own religion very convincingly. I okay. believe there's uh, been a lot of scholarly debate about the demographies of heaven and hell. Yes, I think that's one of, that was interesting to discover that um, it, it has long been uh, a sort of philosophical problem. I, and as part of the book is not just what will we find in these worlds, but but who? Um, and so uh, there are various philosophers. I think King James even produced his own hierarchy of um, 
demon of demon classifications um and there's a medieval mathematician called michael scott and we're talking sort of early 1200s um who concluded based on the very scant information in the bible that there were and he gave a precise figure that there were 14 million uh, demons in hell and then 200 years later a spanish bishop called alfonso de spina um, blew this up to 133 million. I think probably because we realise um, as populations grow and grow, um, so too must the uh, the kind of bureaucracy well, to deal well, with it. But conversely, there's a 13th century Franciscan friar who calculates that only one in 100,000 will crack it for heaven. Yes, um, Bertolt de Regensburg. I mean, I, I think that, and we still find that today in certain sects, don't we, that only the very, very few um, chosen ones will be allowed um, through the rapture. That's a bit Jehovah's Witnessish, isn't it? It is, but what's interesting is um, through this approach to the book, looking for specific um, measurements and figures, that that actual that idea of just a limited amount of people allowed in does make sense if you look at the proportions of heaven, the physical proportions that are provided um, in chapter one of Revelation, where he- heaven is a symmetrical cube. Um, about twelve thousand furlongs on each side, which is which means that heaven is about fifteen hundred miles on each side. So if it came to rest on earth, then the biblical heaven would cover a landmass equal to about one half of the United States. The Sanskrit epic has uh, has um, God Brahma dwelling in an eight hundred mile long, four hundred mile wide, and forty mile high sort of heaven. Yes, uh, yes. So you can imagine that um, there was a lot more uh, room given to Brahma, the um, the the all-powerful um, deity. And and what you find that that Brahma is also um, key in the concept of time, because that's another measurement I was interested in looking at for references. So you know, in Christendom, you have the date of thirteenth of February is given as as the date on which hell was created in medieval calendars, which I thought was interesting, I'd never heard before. Um, and in Hinduism, the entire length of the existence of the universe is a single daydream of Brahma in just one day of his time. So for us, the daydream lasts for about 34 billion years. But then for Brahma, night falls, the universe fades, and the next day he dreams anew. And what's interesting is you can draw a parallel from that to Ashari theology, which is advocated by some Muslim philosophers, which states that Allah is continually destroying and recreating the universe, which is similar to this um, idea of modern, uh, modern quantum field theory that argues that we're being continually annihilated and reformed many times per second. Talking to the wonderful Edward Brooke Hitchings on his history of the afterlife, as an amateur Egyptologist, I'm well aware what Anubis gets up to when he weighs the heart against the feather to see if you're going to, well, face annihilation on the one hand or, or cross the metaphoric Nile to paradise. But there's a lot of weighing, isn't there, going on in, in your book? Yes, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that you point that out because um, I think quite often um, people ask, you know, what are the differences that you find when you compare these different afterworlds? And I think far more interesting are the similarities, um, especially when it's between religions that um, are not sort of neighbouring and are less likely to have had influence over each other in in terms of development. And so this idea of of um, 
the weighing of a soul, judging its merit, you find common around the world. Um, and yes, Anubis was a was a, a great performer of that. And if you failed, then you're, you'd be um, eaten into annihilation by the crocodile god. Um, but I think uh, this, yes, this system of of judging the merit. Uh, I think another really interesting version of it is the Chinvat Bridge um, in Zoroastrian theology. And, and I love the idea that there's two different versions of this um, judging of the soul. And if you are judged to be worthy, then the bridge is immensely wide. The bridge to paradise is wide and uh, it's laid with a carpet of um, stoat skins. It's very comfortable to walk through. And you're led by a psychopomp, which is the term for a, a spiritual guide uh, and who would be a beautiful woman who leads you to paradise singing all the way. However, if you weren't quite as well behaved in life, then the bridge narrows to the width of a razor. You're poked with swords. Um, the psychopomp is a, a, a hideous visage who sort of drags you tumbling off the side of the bridge down into hell. Have you been sleeping well since you started work on this book? <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, I, uh, to be honest, I, I was commissioned to write this uh, before the pandemic started, <laughs> and it was a very strange way of spending lockdown. There is, of course, a similar bridge in Islamic tradition. Yes, and that's that's clearly got a very strong influence from the Chinvat Bridge. Um, and so I, I, I think when you notice these similarities, it's quite fascinating because it really shows you, it reveals the the general um, mechanics of the human imagination, the world over, you know, how, how similar our fears and our fantasies um, and, and our, how the thought processes that work through these um, are just such a similar engine. I think it's quite fascinating. Tell me a little about purgatory. I've never quite understood where it fits into the, the scheme of things. Yes, purgatory is a funny one and there are um, um, terrific books um, written in detail on the development but essentially it's in terms of um, um the development of christianity it's a much um later idea because it's it's something that became um well it's necessity. not biblical is it no exactly i think we're talking around the 10th century when it becomes rationalized because it needed to exist because there's a very simple question if you perhaps committed one or two minor sins but your, therefore your soul was still tarnished a little bit. It seems rather unfair that you would be um, consigned to an eternity of infernal torment. So surely there must be a way of um, making up for those sins once deceased to allow you access into the heaven that you'd be more rightly deserving of. And so purgatory um, is introduced as a kind of waiting room, where a, a sort of dry cleaning process for the soul. Um, where um, purgatorial fire eventually um, cleanses you of those sins and you're allowed admittance to heaven and uh, away from the greatest punishment, which was the lack of God's love, and, and then eventually you are embraced. But uh, a cynic might also point to the fact that it was incredibly lucrative for the church because you could pay for prayers in a service to be offered to your um, loved, deceased loved ones to ensure that they escaped purgatory and made their way to heaven. Edward, I'm, I'm not at all knowledgeable on, on Catholic theology, but as I understand it, either purgatory or limbo got the sack. Which, which was it? I think limbo um, fell out of 
necessity in a way because purgatory takes its place. Um, and in fact, there are several different limbos. There's the limbos of the infants, limbos of, of the fathers. Um, but again, it, it, it's ideas that grew out of um, looking at the, what's known in, in, in the scholarship as the problem of hell. It seems like rather an extreme um, end destination for, for a lot of um, well-meaning souls. Um, and so there have to be these side rooms in the same way that um, we mentioned with um, Buddhist theology that hells eventually break down into more and more different levels, more departments. Um, that's what's so interesting about tracing the history of these ideas is you watch them evolve and you watch them change with the development of our understanding of the natural world. So there are, um, mentioned in the book, there are stories of scientists looking at what exactly purgatorial fire could be composed of to not burn oneself with. So much to cover, so little time. I want you to tell us about the American city of Zion, just up the road from Chicago, it, because if yes. nothing else, it has some Australian connections. It does. It's it's my favourite story. I'm so glad you asked. Because um, yes, I, I really of all of all characters in history, I love the eccentric who weaponized his imagination. And um, John Alexander Dowie, um, uh, who was I think he moved from Scotland, but he was essentially a Melbourne boy, um, developed uh, into a uh, a faith healer. Uh, essentially, if one can be cruel, a bit of a con man. He claimed to be the living embodiment of Elijah the Restorer and would charge huge tithes for his healing. <laughs> but his church um, in Melbourne burnt down in 1888 in mysterious circumstances that with great fortune meant he could collect a huge insurance payout. Um, and eventually he moved to America, um, continued to grow his following, um, and was so popular that eventually he had so much money he was able <laughs> to buy something like 6,000 acres um, of land about 40 miles north of Chicago and founded his own city, Zion, which is one of the few cities that was completely planned out. Well, it was uh, built. but I don't want to live there, Edward, because uh, it must have been <laughs> awful. Everything was forbidden, wasn't it? Everything that we enjoy. Um, and, you know, the, the local police force had patients written on their helmets. Um, they had two holsters, one with a billy club, one with a Bible. Um, and yes, smoking was forbidden. If you were caught smoking, you were branded a stink pot. And it's actually the first place in the world where they had anti-smoking billboards. Um, and this is sort of turn of the 20th century. Um, and Dowie owned everything. Everything went through him, and, and his followers were offered uh, sort of thousand-year leases. Um, uh, and no one wondered how it was that he was able to ride around in gold carriages where all this money was coming from. And it was, of course, discovered he was embezzling millions from the town bank that he ran. <laughs> well, he did some good. I mean, he banned tan-coloured shoes. And I've always thought <laughs> that they're incredibly sinful. Well, exactly. I mean, clearly you and he have some some vendetta against that particular colour. But uh, yes, tan shoes as well as pool and pork, oysters, medicine and doctors and politicians for obvious reasons. I am now going to invade your privacy, Edward. I've come <laughs> clean. I'm an atheist. I, am, I approach the afterlife with extreme scepticism. What do you think? Well, writing this book, I left myself out of it because a lot of histories of um, 
of, of afterlife beliefs and development of religions are written by Christian scholars, and you very much feel their belief um, filling the pages. I wanted to produce a completely objective travel guide. Everything is described in the present tense, because who am I to say that one still exists and one doesn't? Oh, but, don't give me a hint. <laughs> okay. Well, ultimately, I'm I'm... I'm actually very happy with the mystery. Um, and I was thinking about how to conclude the book with this idea that I'm happy not to know, but to keep my mind open. And one of my, I think the most beautiful expressions of that idea you can find in the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical history of the English people, which was written in 731 by the Venerable Bede. Um, and in that, um, there is a discussion on, on what could be in the next life. And someone compares it to a sparrow um, flying in the hall at one door and um, flying through the hallway and all, um, admiring all its glitter and heat and then flying out again at the other side into the darkness. Um, and that seems the most beautiful way of um, imagining our short period of existence. Edward, I uh, sometimes make a, an award. It's called the koala stamp. It's a metaphoric thing, but you've just won a koala stamp with, I might add, gum leaf clusters. Thank you for that. Wow. Edward Brook (laughs) Hitching, and he's a rare book collector and author, and his latest is, yes, The Devil's Atlas, an explorer's guide to heavens, hells, and afterworlds. And it's published by Simon & Schuster. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.